Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today, we are going to start a several weeks long discussion about gender roles and Christianity. And today, we're really going to be focusing on what it's like to be a woman in Christianity. We're going to talk about some sexism and kind of some of the origins of that. We're going to talk about the creation story and how that sets the stage for sexism, for misogyny, and for androcentricity, actually, in Christianity. And this information is coming from a wide array of information that I've read over the past year. I've studied Aristotle and Plato and ancient Greek philosophers that then informed kind of the thought patterns of the Roman Empire that really influenced Judaism at the time and Christianity later. We're going to talk about um, early priests and theologians and their study and philosophy about women and men in the early church, like the early Catholic church. We're going to talk about uh, Reformation theologians. So Martin Luther, Calvin, we're going to be talking about Wesley. We're going to be talking about these, you know, different theologians and philosophers during the Reformation and their thoughts and ideas about women and men. And then we're going to move into American theology, including some Mormon thought processes, some Protestant and Shaker thought processes, as well as modern-day theologians. So this is spanning probably 3,000 years' worth of ideology about men and women, and we're particularly going to be looking at Christianity and society that's heavily influenced by Christianity like American society is. Now, as those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a while know, I grew up Mormon. But what you may not know, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in my actual podcast before, but my mother converted to Mormonism when I was an infant, when I was about six months old, from evangelical Christianity, particularly Methodism. So she grew up Methodist, but from there, her seven sisters, they joined you know, the Southern Baptists, they stayed Methodist, they became other types of evangelical Christians. Some of them became much more liberal, sort of non-denominational Christians, but there was a lot of very loud and proud Christianity going on on my mother's side that I grew up with. I grew up going to vacation Bible study with my Methodist grandmother and with my Southern Baptist uh, aunt, which I know is like fascinating for most people who come from Mormonism, because as most people know, Mormons and Southern Baptists typically don't get along. And I had a front seat to that growing up. I had a mother and uh, an aunt who love each other deeply, who care deeply about one another, and yet would have really deep philosophical like arguments and you know, one of my aunts would be sitting there screaming, you're going to hell. And my mother would be screaming her own stuff. And it, you know, there was a lot of tension around religious philosophy for me as a child growing up. And I have vivid memories of, you know, my mother trying to evangelize Mormonism to her evangelical Christian family and them kind of paying that forward in turn. So a lot of very strong female voices kind of arguing theology back and forth out of concern for one another. And so I grew up with that. Now, the other crazy thing is, is that my father converted from Catholicism whenever I was seven. So I was also very 
aware of Catholicism. I went to the Catholic cathedrals down in Mexico when I would visit my dad's parents. And though I couldn't understand the language, like I was used to the atmosphere and the stained glass windows and the chanting and kind of the dark candlelit mysterious sort of atmosphere that was down there. And so I had this like wide experience with a a large spectrum of Christianity growing up, which I'm, the longer I'm deconstructing, the more I think unique I realize that experience is to have had very hands-on experiences with evangelical Christianity at things like See You at the Pole at things like, you know, Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Vacation Bible Study growing up, but also to have like the Catholic experience and to have the priest and the incense and the, you know, the swinging smoke and the scepters and the, you know, the the wine and the wafers, which I took, you know, I, I got in line and I took communion. So there were, there were, there was this wide array of Christianity in my life. And then I was also raised in a Christian adjacent religion that was, you know, very, very, very based on Christianity, but also had its kind of own American supremacy flavor. So it's um, it's kind of an odd thing to have had experienced all of this. And yet one of the things we could all agree on, even though we had a wide array of ideologies and feelings about what the quote unquote truth was, we all could agree on gender roles growing up. So all of these strong women across all of these different, you know, Christian religious experiences all could agree on gender roles. And almost all of us pointed back to the Garden of Eden, the fall of Adam and Eve, and what that meant about men and women and what it meant about our state as humans And really, it was these kind of like moments where we were drawing on Bible stories that, you know, we felt this relation and this connection as far as religion goes. Like there were lots of other ways we felt connected. My family is really into cooking and we play card games and we laugh and, you know, there's lots of things that connect us together. But religion's a big part of our identity. And so it was often a point of contention, particularly in my mother's household. But one of the things that would always bring us back together is we believed in Jesus. I knew all the Bible stories. My mom had taught those to us. My mom believed in them. And so, you know, I could participate at Vacation Bible Study and hold my own with other kids who were raised Southern Baptist or Methodist. Like, I knew the stories and that felt familiar. And so even though I was being raised in an organization that most of my evangelical Christian family would have considered a cult— they knew I believed in Jesus and they knew I believed these Bible stories and that I was actively reading my Bible. And that kind of gave us this like feeling of, I guess, connection religiously. Now, actually, we never had much conflict with the Catholic side of my family because I didn't speak Spanish as a child and they didn't speak English. So it was always this like weird game of complicated charades when we went to visit them in Mexico, sprinkled with like verbal por favor and gracias. But The stained glass in their rather impressive Gothic cathedral suggested that they also definitely believed in the same creation story that I had been taught as a child. And so there was this kind of feeling of, we're all in this together. We might have different nuances in beliefs, but we all believe we came from the same creation. We all believe in the same Savior. And because of that, we also had really similar ideas about our roles as women, our roles as men, who is the head of the household. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about how the origin story, the creation story in Genesis 1 through 3, how that really has informed maybe not the text itself, but what previous theologians taking their ideas about men and women and who the superior sex was, how they applied that to the text. Because there are some sexist things actually in the text, but not as many as you would believe. Like, considering how often the creation story is 
referred to as why men are the head and women are the subordinate sex. Like, (laughs) there's really not that much in the text. It's been the interpretation of the text really over the past 2,000 years that has really led to some of these deep-seated ideas that have led to kind of a patriarchal society. And so we're going to be digging into that. This is meant to be a discussion. That means I'm not the guru. I don't have answers. I've simply been getting curious. We're going to explore ideas. We're going to explore the creation story. We're going to explore what some of the early theologians, as well as some of the ancient philosophers, all had to say about these things. And then at the end, we're going to ask ourselves questions and have a discussion. Now, a huge thank you to those of you on the Facebook group. If you're not part of it, the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group is a wonderful place for you to get involved in this discussion. We're going to be discussing things, but also there's so much information when it comes to these topics. I could talk about this for two, three, maybe even like five years, weekly episodes, and I would still probably have information I could cover after that. There's a million different directions I could go when we're talking about sexism, gender roles, uh, masculinity, femininity, uh, androcentricity, patriarchy, like all of those things and how they kind of are involved in all the different aspects of our life. I could talk about that for, I could go a million different directions. And the people on Facebook have been like, this is what I want to hear about. This is what I want to hear about. So We've really been able to organize ourselves because of the comments there. So thank you so much for your participation over on the Emancipate Yourself group. And if you want to be a part of that, make sure you go and join. Now, all Christians, regardless of the particular doctrine or dogma we grew up with, we grew up being taught and likely to one degree or another believing parts or all of the creation story. And you guys know the creation story, right? God creates the the world in seven days, like the light and the dark, the plants, the oceans, the land. Um, And then depending on whether you're reading Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, either creates animals and then creates Adam and then creates Eve or creates Adam and Eve and then creates the animals. So it kind of contradicts itself in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to be mostly focusing on Genesis 2 because this is where a lot of the sexism tends to come from. This is where a lot of those early theologians in the Catholic Church really kind of pull from this story to justify patriarchy. So the garden is created. God creates man from the dust, breathes life into his nostrils, gives Adam a charge to take care of the garden and all of the animals in the garden, even gives him authority to name all of the animals. And after he names all the animals, he realizes there's no companion that's equal to him. And so God causes a deep sleep to come upon Adam. He takes a rib out of his side. He creates Eve from Adam's bone and flesh and presents Eve to Adam as a helpmeet. And then, of course, from there, you know, they're commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They can eat from the tree of life and any other tree in the garden, but they can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or otherwise they will surely die. And Eve listens to the serpent. The serpent tells her, hey, like, this is going to make you wise. And Eve eats of the fruit. And after she eats of the fruit, she gives the fruit to Adam. Adam eats of the fruit. God comes down. They realize they're naked. They put on fig leaves. God comes down. Um, They tell him that, you know, they're naked. God says, how do you know you're naked? Did you eat of the fruit? Adam says, yeah. Eve gave it to me. Eve says, yeah. The serpent beguiled me. And the serpent's cursed. Then Eve is cursed. And then Adam is cursed. And they're kicked out of the garden. So that's like creation story kind of in a nutshell. Now, in today's discussion, we're going to explore the different implications that could be taken from the creation story, as well as the fall of Adam and Eve, according to several Christian scholars and theologians, both male and female, both past and present. And we're going to get curious about the impact 
that may have had on our understanding of being a woman, both in Christianity and Western society in general. Now, I want you to understand that this is not like, this is what this means. You and I both know this story could be interpreted a million different ways. When I was growing up, the creation story was meant to be this beautiful story that shows how much God loves us and how man and woman are one flesh, like a husband and wife are one flesh. They're so closely related. They, the first man and woman were created from the same genetic material. Now, I have lots of issues with that now on the other side of this, but growing up, I found this to be a beautiful story that husband and wife were meant to be one, like so close that it was like they were one flesh and that they were supposed to help each other. The interpretation I was given was actually a more liberal kind of sex equal approach, which was that man and woman were equal. One was not above the other. The reason Eve was taken from the rib was because she was meant to be at his side, not at his head, not at his feet. This idea is actually taken from a contemporary church theologian um, in evangelical Christianity and was kind of passed down the grapevine to me through Mormon scholars, believe it or not. But this idea that man and woman were equal and that help meet meant equal partner. So I was taught this, even though it wasn't the practice I experienced like in the church. It was more or less what I experienced in my home to a certain degree, but not necessarily what I experienced at church. There was a lot of benevolent patriarchy, which we will talk about in another podcast, where women are elevated and paid lip service to, but really are given very little power and they are expected to be subservient in many, many ways. So this is meant to be a discussion because honestly, after a year of study and I've been studying thousands of years of literature, you know, spanning 3000 years, literature about men and women, their roles, who's supposed to be the leaders, who's supposed to be subservient and why, really it comes down to this. No one has answers. And I don't think we're meant to have answers. I think this is supposed to be an ongoing discussion. And I think that we're supposed to continue to talk about our experiences, to share those experiences with others, and to find ways to you know, move forward as a society in a way that is a win for all the sexes and for all the expressions of humanity, you know, all the races, all the sexes, all the gender identities, all the sexual orientations, we're meant to continue having these discussions because these discussions on sexism have implications above and beyond gender roles. So I love like the Mujerista mo movement in the Latinx community is like, Feminism, so feminist theology, but mixed with like concerns about racism, gender identity, and um, sexual orientation. So the Mujerista movement has has really informed a lot of my work, as well as womanism. So in the Black community, they are more concerned about race and gender kind of combined and how those intersect and how we experience that and um, because the feminist movement often caters to middle-class white women, and it often excludes other expressions of humanity, other expressions of womanhood. It, you know, can overlook transgender people. It can overlook Latinx and Black and Indigenous people. And so I love this idea that comes from Dr. Rachel Sophia Beard. She's an assistant professor of theology and ethics at Union Presbyterian Seminary, and she's the author of Sexism and Sin Talk, Feminist Conversations on the Human Condition. And I was listening to an online seminar she was giving to a Presbyterian congregation. And this idea, she said that theology is meant to be a continuing discussion. And she said, much like a river the canon, like the scripture or what is established theology, can be viewed as the riverbed that holds the structure for the conversation. And then the continuing conversation is the water running through the bed. And that continuing flow of ideas over time 
changes and molds and shapes the riverbed for further discussions. So I really love that idea, and that's what I'm hoping to establish here. Now, before we start today's discussion, I have a special ask for you this week. I want you to speak up in the Facebook group. Let us know what you understand from this creation story. What were you taught about Adam and Eve? What were you taught about the creation? How did you interpret that? Why did you interpret it that way? How has it informed your ideas about men and women? How has it informed your ideas about who should be in charge and who has authority? How has it informed your ideas about God, your relationship with God? How do you feel like it's impacted your life? And what do you feel like the benefit and or the harm this story may have added to religion, to society, and to our feelings about what it means to be a woman or a man? I really want your perspective. All of our perspectives are valuable in this discussion, and it helps us get a full picture. Each of us has a few threads, and we're weaving this tapestry together. And when we all bring our threads to the table, we create a more full picture. So I want your threads in the discussion. And then, of course, if you are finding so much value in this podcast, if it's changing your life, if it's helping you understand yourself better, please go to emancipateyourself.org and donate $10 today. Like, Pause the podcast, go over there and donate $10. That money really does allow me to set aside a couple of days each week to devote to research. That money allows me to support myself and my family so that I don't have to take clients on those days so that I can actually sit with the information and bring you podcasts that have substance. If you want to support that, pause now and go donate $10 and consider becoming a monthly contributor. Thank you ahead of time. Now, let's get going with this discussion. So first, we're going to start in Genesis 2 and just see what we can glean. So we've got man being put into the Garden of Eden to dress and keep it. And while he's alone in the garden, God creates all manner of animals and brings them, presents them to Adam for him to name. And whatever Adam names them, that's what the animal's called. So that's some authority there. Adam's given authority, and he is given the authority to name these animals and to like care for them and attend the garden. Adam can't find a help me out of any of the beasts he's named. So God puts Adam in a deep sleep. He takes one of his ribs and he fashions a woman from that rib to be his helpmeet. And then he brings her to Adam for Adam to name. Now, here are some of the things that stand out to me. And this is not comprehensive. There's so much we can glean from this chapter. And I've read volumes on just the creation story alone. But here's some of the things that really stood out to me just from today's reading. So the first thing is that Adam is created first. And this is important because this idea is drawn upon by several theologians to suggest that man is the most important, and that's the reason he comes first. Eve almost feels like an afterthought in this story when Adam begins to feel lonely or overwhelmed with his responsibilities. So in this story, we're told that an all-powerful male creator, even though much of Christianity believes that God has no body, no passions, does not have genitalia. We refer to God with male pronouns, which suggests that God is male or God has male traits. Now, I know this isn't true for all Christians. You may have been taught that God had male and female traits, but we refer to God as he, as a sign of respect in many cases. And for many of us, saying he and his really brings up a male ideology. So I'm saying that he's a male God. Now, Mormonism takes it a step further. God is embodied. So God is an actual dude with all the genitalia that entails, has a harem of wives actually has sex with those wives and creates the spirits that then are embodied into human bodies. Like, it gets real weird in Mormonism. But God is an actual man. Like, we're talking Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel sort of a dude. So when I was taught about God growing up in Mormonism, I was taught about the white dude with the 
long white beard, very much like what you would see in Michelangelo's depiction on the Sistine Chapel. So I know for much of Christianity, God has no form or shape. He's inconceivable. The human mind can't wrap itself around the image of God. That's why we have Jesus, because Jesus is God incarnate, and it allows us to kind of visualize God and kind of like wrap some imagery around that. But God himself in his infinite form is formless, boundless, passionless. Like, I get this. And I was raised in Mormonism where God literally was in a glorified body and um, was a separate being from Jesus, who was also in a glorified body after resurrection. And, you know, part of him being God was having multiple wives and countless children. And then those spirits then came and inhabited bodies of flesh. So, yeah. But we have in this story an all-powerful male creator that doesn't even consider creating woman at the same time that man is created. So it's not like he's like, okay, in Genesis 1, he does. It makes it sound like he's like, hey, let's create man in our own image, male and female, let's create them in our own image, which, which suggests that there's either female gods or a female god, which Mormonism kind of plays on that, or that God has male and female characteristics. So if you can create females in your own image and you're male maybe or you're genderless, then that's how that would work. But does not even consider creating a female in Genesis 2. Creates just Adam. And an all-knowing, all-powerful male creator doesn't say, hey, you know, maybe this guy's going to get lonely. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to give them a, a commandment to multiply and replenish the earth. Kind of need a female for that. There's not a lot of thought process here like, hey, a woman would be nice. So just creates man and it's only when Adam says, hey, kind of lonely here. It's not good. You know, I, I feel alone. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's only then that he realizes that animals aren't enough company or help for human Adam. And he puts Adam to sleep and creates Eve from Adam's rib. So this feels already problematic because God only thinks to create Adam and then Eve comes along as a helper because of Adam's need. She is created to meet Adam's need. She's not created as her own kind of separate creation. She's created in conjunction with a man. And this presents a lot of problems in a lot of the theological um, philosophy, especially in the early church. And it continues even today. Like you can still hear preachers preaching from this idea that woman is created to serve man. And that like because of this creation story, it's obvious that man is the one created by God and woman is created to serve man. So there is that. Eve isn't created as an independent creation. She's created from a piece of Adam. This is another problem. So she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, which again, when I was growing up Mormon, I found very beautiful. And I kind of still see some beauty in that, that in a creation story, understanding that these people are connected in a very profound way and that we care about one another the way we care about ourselves. That, you know, we love one another as we love ourselves, which is also later in the New Testament in the scriptures that we, you know, love ourselves, but we love each other as like understanding that we're all intertwined. We're all connected. If there's a group of us that are being marginalized and hated on, that we're all hurt, whether we realize it or not. So I do find some beauty in this kind of imagery that she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh because there's this idea of interconnectedness. But this also can imply that Eve isn't her own person and that there's a part of her that belongs to Adam. And we see this played on throughout history, that Eve is not her own. She belongs to her husband. She belongs to man. And that without man, she ceases to exist. 
So this becomes a problematic ideology throughout the past 2,000 years of history because Eve is created from Adam. She's not also created from her own clay and God doesn't breathe life into her nostrils. She's created from a piece of a man. In fact, Adam calls her woman because she came out of man. That's the reason her name is woman, according to the Bible. So this is especially poignant when we realize that Eve wasn't created to be a helpmeet to God like Adam was. So Adam's created. He's stuck in the garden. He's given charge to take care of God's garden. He's given, you know, the instructions to take care of all the plants and the animals, and he's given authority to name these animals. So he is like a manager, if you will, for God. He's someone that God trusts, and he's a helper to God. But Eve is created specifically to help Adam. She's presented to him like a gift that was meant to act in the capacity as his helpmeet. So it's not like God comes down and says, hey, this is another one of my creations. She has a special link to me. You have a special link to me. And you both are meant to help each other. At no point is Adam called a helpmeet for Eve. Eve is the only one that is called a helpmeet. And again, this is an idea that is played off of a lot in Christian theology over the last 2,000 years, that women were created from man with the specific purpose to help men and to be an assistant to them and a support to them and a salvation to them. Like there's lots of different translations of the word helpmeet, but they all entail woman serving man to make him better, either to make his life easier or to save him from whatever predispositions he may have to keep him in line. We see this especially with the purity culture movement where women are tasked to be helpmeets in the way that they help men with their naturally lustful thoughts that women are somehow held up as more pure and therefore have this like saving power for men who are not as pure. It's very strange. Again, that benevolent patriarchy that sort of elevates women on a pedestal and talks about how wonderful spiritual Um, and elevated they are, but then tasks them with codependency and caretaking for men. So it becomes very, very problematic, and it creates a lot of subconscious work for women and a lot of, like, a lot of the problems that come with codependency when someone makes a choice and you feel personally responsible to have kept that person from making a choice that hurts them or your relationship. Now let's talk really quick about what a help me is. There are all kinds of contradictory explanations of what the original Hebrew meant by this word. All of them agree on the word helper. So in today's use of the word helper, Merriam-Webster says that a helper is someone who helps someone else, especially a relatively unskilled worker who assists a skilled worker by manual labor. And now I understand that language has changed a great deal over the years, but we still use this text to justify gender roles today in today's society with today's language. So I do think it's helpful to recognize that in the current context of helper, women could be seen as the less skilled sex, the less intelligent or the less qualified than men because the word help meet is being used. So Someone could read the Bible and say, well, it says she's supposed to be a helper. Helper means a less skilled person who helps a more skilled person. And therefore, women are naturally less skilled, less intelligent, less qualified. And that's how God created them. And there are many people who take the Bible literally and don't critically think about it and will take the translation that serves them best and will then, you know, put that on their congregation or their family um, or out in the world. So from this understanding, you get people who believe that men are God-ordained to be the head and women their subordinates that assist in the male endeavors. So in Mormonism, what this would look like is men go out and conquer the world in their chosen profession, and they also are leaders in the church on top of that. So Let's say we had stayed in the church a little bit longer. This probably wouldn't have happened because my husband's a marriage and family therapist, and the LDS church does not like calling mandated reporters to be bishops. Like, it just does not happen. I'm becoming more and more aware of this as I talk to more and more people. 
But because he's a marriage and family therapist, my husband probably never would have been a bishop simply because he's a mandated reporter. He has the skills to deal with, like, to recognize abuse and to um, recognize, like, all the different kinds of psychological abuse, not just physical abuse. So because of that, probably never would have been in this position. But let's say, you know, he's at work. My husband works, you know four days a week or whatever right now. So he sees like 10 to 12 clients a day, four days a week. Um, he's a super busy therapist, but he only works four days a week. So he gets a three-day weekend every, you know, every week. But let's say those three-day weekends were taken up with being the bishop. Bishop work takes about 20 hours a week. So now my husband is working anywhere from 60 to 70 hours a week. My job if we're referring to this story, to some people's understanding of this story, would be that I'm the subordinate and I'm here to pick up the slack to help him shine. It's a very kind of codependent, narcissistic sort of dynamic, like what we've been talking about, that women are meant to be codependent to elevate men because men are God-ordained to be the head, not only of the family, but the head of the church and the head of the world. And my job is to quietly, meekly, joyfully do all the work, you know, behind the scenes to elevate him. So, and that's been propagated. That idea has been propagated a lot. Now, as for the meat part of help meet, many ideas have come up. LDS author Beverly Campbell recognized that many Christian females feel apologetic about their womanhood because of the creation story. And this has been my experience as a coach as well. Many of my clients who identify as female have felt like there's something inherently not quite enough or not quite okay with being a woman. There's often shame for people. I've yet to have a client that's like, oh no, I was born a woman and it's been the most amazing thing. When you've come from high demand religion, often it's, I was born a woman and there are issues attached to that. Now, I haven't seen everyone in the world and I often see a very specific kind of client. So maybe that's the reason that's been my experience. But Beverly Campbell's recognizing that same pattern. That Christian females feel apologetic about their womanhood because of the creation story and the negative characterizations of Eve that we've been hearing since we were children. But she suggests that over time, the real meaning of the word help meet was lost. That originally help meet was supposed to mean something like to rescue, to save, to be strong, to be equal. She goes into Hebrew linguist translations and rabbinical commentaries on the words ezer, which means to rescue, to save, or be strong, and kenegdo, which means equal. And I probably slaughtered those words. I speak Spanish. I do not speak Hebrew. And she believes the original meaning should sound more like this. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a companion of strength and power who has a saving power and is equal with him. And while that sounds better, adding words like strength, power, and equal, it still for me has some problematic themes like women being made to save others. For those who've listened to my episodes on codependency, women are often indoctrinated to see themselves as saviors and gatekeepers of their husband and children's goodness. They're often taking the blame when family members make decisions they believe God wouldn't approve of. So even with this new translation, I still find it problematic for women, especially in light of the current way we tend to put women on ideological pedestals while giving them little or no real power in the organization or in the family. Now, Jeff Benner of the Ancient Hebrew Research Center, he uses the mechanical translation. So that's a translation of the Bible that is meant to more realistically portray the Hebrew meanings of the Bible to an English reader. And he uses the mechanical translation to assert that the term help me most likely means I will make for him a helper as his opposite. So his opinion was that this meant Eve was to be his other half or like the yin to Adam's yang. He believes that this was God saying he would endow Adam with his masculine godlike attributes 
and women with his feminine godlike attributes so that they could complement one another. Again, this sounds nice on the surface, but what it doesn't allow for is the full expression of masculinity and femininity in each one of us. If men are gifted only God's masculine traits and women are gifted only God's feminine traits, well, what do we do with a man who's highly sensitive, empathic, emotional, intuitive, flexible, understanding, and devoted, which are all considered feminine traits? And what do we do with a woman who's highly logical, assertive, ambitious, competitive, strong, independent, and structured? I'm sure you can already see that in modern society, both of these people who don't fit their archetype would struggle. The man would be shamed and called effeminate for his sensitivity and emotion. The woman would be called a raging bitch for being assertive and independent. These ideas aren't just harmful for women, but for men as well. And we're going to talk about that more in a future episode on toxic masculinity. So interwoven into this idea of sexism and patriarchy and androcentricity are not just very strong ideas about how women should be, but very strong ideas about how men should be. And it is stifling and it creates psychological, emotional, and mental problems, both for men and women. Now, another premise that comes up from this chapter of Genesis paired with 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, is that women are inferior because they were created last. For I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men, but she is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So you can already see the scapegoating that's happening there. You can see this ideology. And let's remember that the Bible is not a book. I like how um, the professor I mentioned earlier, let me go back to her name, Dr. Rachel Sophia Bard from the Union Presbyterian Seminary. She says, the Bible is not a book, it's a library. And I think it's really important for us to remember when we're reading things about this, that, you know, First Timothy was written a hundred years or more after the first books of the New Testament. So some of the first books of the New Testament are showing up about 50 to 80 years after the death of Christ. So we have books that are, you know, showing up and are being printed, like, you know, books in the Bible showing up and being printed. Mark was the first one. And then books after that are being built on top of these ideologies. So when we look at the linguistics, when we look at the, you know, similarities in the language, Mark is the most original. And then likely Luke and Matthew are built on top of Mark. They're kind of a expansion of Mark. And then you have John, which is this very Hellenistic version that is believed to have been written like 120 years, 150 years after the death of Christ. So think about what Christianity was like 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And how much Christianity has changed. Think about how much Christianity has changed in the past 10 years here in the United States. How much it's changed since the 90s. So I've seen Christianity morph and change and, and you know become a different beast just in my lifetime. And I'm 42. Now double that. Now triple that. And how does religion change? So these books are built on one another. So we have the creation story, and that's been circulating at this point for hundreds of years. This is a Hebrew book that's been circulating for hundreds of years amongst a Hebrew nation. And now we're combining this Hebrew book with Hellenistic ideology, with Greek philosophers, with the ideas of Aristotle and Plato, who did not have super kind feelings about women. Plato was a little bit more egalitarian. He thought that women should be educated and should have all the same opportunities that men did, but still felt like women were inferior. Aristotle did not feel like women deserved those opportunities because he thought that, you know, women were a defect. It was a second life for a man who didn't live his first life with courage and valor. And so men were created by the gods 
And if they didn't live courageously, if they didn't live, quote unquote, righteously, I don't think that's what Aristotle would say. But if he didn't live righteously, then he comes back in his next life as a woman, like a second class citizen as his punishment for not being a valiant enough man in his first life. So we've got these ideas that have been circulating for a couple hundred years mixed with ideas from the Talmud. I'm sorry, not the Talmud. So we've got these ideas from, you know, Greek philosophy that have been around for a couple hundred years being mixed with ideas from the Torah, not the Talmud. I'm so sorry. But from the Torah, which are those, you know, first books of the Old Testament that have been circulating in, you know, Jewish society and informing Jewish society for hundreds of years. So we have those things coming together and we're getting some of these ideas about gender roles and why man was created first and women were created second. Now, when we get to Genesis 3, women become not just the mother of all living, but also they begin to be seen as the mother of all evil in the world and the reason the fall takes place. Now, I will tell you to be as unbiased as possible, there is a whole thought process that focuses on Adam fell, that men might be, and that Adam was the one that brought sin into the world. But there is a whole other thought process that really draws from that first Timothy 2, 12 through 14, that says the woman was deceived. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and she became the transgressor. And from here, we start getting this feeling that women hold responsibility. Eve particularly, but through Eve, all women hold responsibility for bringing evil into the world and for the fall of man and being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And there's a whole like ideology that if Eve hadn't have eaten the fruit, that we all would have been born into this paradisical state. But <laughs> that's really hard for me growing up in Mormonism because I was taught that they were given paradoxical commandments. They were given a commandment, Adam and Eve, to multiply and replenish the earth, which requires a loss of innocence. It requires sex, which I was taught was a loss of innocence. But then they were also taught not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I was taught that they weren't fully mortal because they couldn't die until they ate that tree. And in order to become parents, they had to become mortal. So they like had these two impossible things that could not go together, which seems incredibly abusive to me now, especially when you've got these innocent beings that don't know the difference between, you know, good and evil. They they haven't eaten the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil yet. So they're still innocent. And you can see it in the text that they act like two-year-olds, like, what? We've been running around naked? I didn't even know what naked was. Like, they act like very, very young children. And giving that giving them that kind of moral dilemma and then cursing them for having to make that choice feels very abusive to me but that's neither here nor there in this episode so in genesis 3 the serpent talks to eve and tells her that the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil will make her wise even though she's been commanded not to eat it or even touch it because she will surely die so in this chapter, she eats the fruit. She gives Adam the fruit. He also eats the fruit. Their eyes are open and they realize they're naked and they make their first clothes and then they hide from God when they hear his voice. They feel shame for the first time. They, they feel shame about being naked. They feel shame about being disobedient. God asks Adam if he ate fruit from the tree. And while admitting he ate it, he also throws Eve under the bus for giving it to him. Like He's like, yeah, Eve gave me the fruit and I did eat. So I'm glad that he at least takes responsibility. Like, yeah, I ate it. But he's also like, yeah, she gave it to me. And then God asks Eve what she's done. And she admits she ate the fruit. But then she sort of scapegoats the serpent for beguiling her. And for those of you who are wondering what beguiling means, it means to charm or enchant her. So also some scapegoating like, I didn't have full agency. He charmed and enchanted me. Like he used his magic. Sometimes in a deceptive way. And then... God curses the serpent and makes him the lowest of all animals. God curses woman by multiplying her sorrow and bringing forth children and says she'll only desire her husband and her husband will rule over her. 
This is really where we start getting some of those patriarchal ideas really concretely in the Bible text in Genesis. This is some of the first mention that the husband doesn't, like the husband and wife aren't just ruling and subduing the earth together, but that the husband rules over the wife. And it makes it sound like that's her punishment for taking of the fruit of the tree. And then God curses Adam for listening to his wife. I found this incredibly fascinating that Eve is punished for eating, for wanting knowledge of good and evil. She's punished for having her eyes open and for being the first one to do that. But Adam is punished for listening to his wife. He's punished for taking into consideration the things that she says. And this has created some really abusive dynamics between husbands and wives throughout church history. And there are so many theologians that talk about how women are there to bear children. Augustine, I am looking at you. So Augustine had a lot to say about how the only use of women is in bearing children and keeping house and basically says like, what else could a woman offer a man? Like if a man needed help, like tilling tilling the ground, another man would be a better help than a woman. Um, if he needed reason, another man would be a better help than woman. And really the only thing that woman does that man cannot do better is bear children and care for them. So St. Augustine, I'm not feeling like you're very saintly right now. Got to say that. Haven't been feeling like you're very saintly for several months now. And now like to wrap this up, what we're going to talk about is just what stands out. And we're going to kind of bring in some thought leaders about this. And I just want you to kind of think about, like, does this resonate? What were you taught? How did you see some of these ideas in what you were taught religiously? How did that inform your thoughts about what it meant to be your gender? How did it change your thoughts about your mom or your dad or your husband or wife, um, your partner, your kids? How did this change how you understood men and women? And if you want to, how did this change how you understood gen- like gender fluidity or, you know, being transgender? What did this story do for your understanding of the world and gender? Now, let's start with the idea that the serpent only speaks to Eve. This has been a big topic of discussion throughout the past 2,000 years. And those of you who are from a Mormon background, I know this is going to be super difficult. Because LDS prophets added scenes during the creation part of the temple ceremony in which Satan first talks to Adam. Like he approaches Adam first and Adam nobly refuses to eat the fruit and he stays obedient to God. I will not eat it before approaching Eve. So Mormonism like takes the story like that next step further with the sexism and really makes it blatant that Eve is to blame that Satan wasn't cowardly and didn't like not talk to Adam or just like happen to talk to Eve first. He talked to the man of the house and the man of the house was stalwart and he said he was going to be obedient and he would not waver. He would not do it. And then they talked to Eve and Eve's like, okay, so tell me the consequences. Okay, well, that makes sense. So I guess I'll like go ahead and eat because there's no other way. They really, really drill in the sexism a bit more in the temple ceremony for Mormonism, I think, than what is originally in the text. Men are stalwarts. And women, like, we reason too much. Like, we're thinking too much about, like, is there no other way for us to have kids? Is there no other way for us to keep this other commandment? Okay, well, then I guess I'll do it. So they actually make them sound like, they actually make women sound like much more critical thinkers, but that's not necessarily a good thing when you're in high demand religion. It's it's almost presented like that's one of her sins is that she's critically thinking. So Abrahamic scholars, we're talking like Hebrew, Islamic, and Christian scholars and theologians throughout the ages have surmised that Satan speaks to Eve only because of all different kinds of reasons. But these are the three main ones. That women are morally weaker and therefore easier prey. So Thomas Aquinas says, but woman is naturally of less strength and dignity than man. The second one is that women are simple-minded and gullible. Augustine uh, says woman was given to man, woman who was of small intelligence and perhaps still lives more in accordance with the inferior flesh than superior reason. So he says 
women are way too emotional. They are way too human and they don't have superior reason like men. So, you know, they're simple-minded and gullible. Um, women are inherently untrustworthy or they're more inclined to sin. And Tertullian, who is probably my least favorite of all the people I read, ugh, Tertullian and I could have gotten into a fist fight. He says, speaking to a group of women, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that tree. You are the first forsaker of the divine law. You are the one who persuaded him whom the devil was not brave enough to approach. So again, we see that first Timothy ideology again, that the devil was not brave enough to approach Adam because he was superior. And so he came to Eve who forsook the divine law and then persuaded Adam. She had greater persuasive powers and therefore was more of a danger to Adam than even Satan is kind of the feeling we're getting here. What I think is interesting is all of these mostly male, white, European theologians from, you know, first through the 13th century AD, no one proposes that perhaps the serpent speaks to Eve only because she has a better grasp on the dilemma that God proposed. Multiply and replenish the earth, which requires sex and a mortal body, or remain immortal if you don't eat the fruit. Like, we have two conflicting commandments going on. They also don't propose that maybe she was more independent or intelligent than Adam. And I'm not saying that any of these things are true, but no one proposes this. So I don't believe in a superior sex, but I find it interesting that the only proposals put forth by the centuries of male scholars is that Eve eats the fruit because she's at best simple-minded and weak or at worst, inherently more evil than her male counterpart. So there seems to be this like predisposition to believe that women are less than. And it's kind of woven into the sermons and it's woven into the epistles and it's woven into the like tapestry of Christianity over the last 2000 years. And, you know, for the past 2000 years, these male European theologians, they've been philosophizing about the text through the lens of existing patriarchy. So we know from the writings of Aristotle and Plato that patriarchal thought was already rampant. Then the Roman culture and law, which was highly influenced by Greek philosophy, gave women a low place in society. And Christianity sprouts in the middle of these ideologies. Aside from Jesus, who has a much more egalitarian sort of way like he communes with women he asks things of women um tends to be much more kind to women aside from that though we have the writings of paul we have the writings you know in first timothy there's a lot of problematic things happening in the new testament and they seem to be influenced by these patriarchal ideas that are circulating throughout Roman culture and law. And as we know, Israel is under Roman rule during this time. And you have people like Paul going to Rome and, you know, spreading the gospel abroad to the Gentiles, aka the Roman Empire. And so you're going to have these ideas, these patriarchal ideas that already exist kind of mixed in with religious philosophy. Now, Plato said, it's only men who are created directly by the gods and given souls. Those who live rightly return to the stars, but those who are cowards. So I said that wrong earlier. I said Aristotle said this. This was Plato. He did believe Plato was more egalitarian and believed that men and women should both have some equal opportunities for education. But um, still, apparently, believe that those who are cowards like men who are cowards or led unrighteous lives may within reason be supposed to have changed into the nature of women in the second generation. So Plato believed in reincarnation and that if you weren't a good enough man in your first life, you came back in the second life as a woman. So basically being a woman was a punishment for not being a good enough man. And Aristotle said, the female, since she is deficient in natural heat, which I think this is funny. Like I can imagine like an ancient Greek husband. If I were in ancient Greece, I get the coldest hands and feet and butt and nose. Like all my extremities get very, very cold. And I can imagine Aristotle being like, okay, 
the women I spend time with have very cold hands and feet and like being like, they must be deficient in natural heat. So he says the female, since she is deficient in natural heat, is unable to cook her menstrual fluid to the point of refinement, at which point it would become semen. Therefore, her only contribution to the embryo is its matter and a field in which it can grow. And he says the relationship between the male and the female is by nature such that the male is higher, the female lower, that the male rules and the female is ruled. And I just, I think my question for us is this, because for me, when I'm talking, you know, to my extended family about some of these ideas, specifically since deconstructing, because it does come up, like, what do you believe now? What do you think about this? Well, the Bible says this, especially because everybody's become so vocal on social media, that these conversations just happen because for some reason they feel compelled to come onto my personal page and write their ideologies, which is cool with me. Like, go for it. But we're also going to have a discussion. Like, if you're going to come to my page and write your ideologies, if you're writing your ideologies on your own page, like, I might sit there and think about it. And if I don't have anything productive to say, I'll just keep scrolling. If I don't want to have a discussion, you know what I mean? Because same thing goes. If I'm going to write on their page, I expect a discussion. Like, if you don't agree, like, let's talk about it. Like, let's learn from it. That's going to be awesome. But I find that there's still a lot of people that are like, this is what the Bible says, and therefore it's irrefutable. And I guess my question for all of us as we end today's podcast is this. Is it more likely that if there is a God, and that God has existed much longer than we can conceive, and is more intelligent, more powerful, even more loving than we are, that that being would ascribe to the ideologies of earthly philosophers from 500 to 350 BC that were confused about female anatomy and menstruation, among many other things? Like seriously, Aristotle thought menstrual fluid was uncooked semen? That somehow we needed to cook it longer? I'm not like dissing the guy. Like that was what, 2,500 years ago or something? Like we were still figuring a lot of things out. We, we didn't know about cells. We didn't know about germs. Like we didn't know about a lot of things. But we're going to say an all-knowing, all-powerful, hopefully all-loving God is going to agree with these dudes that don't even know how the female body works. Or is it more likely that the men who wrote these scriptures in this library that we call a Bible were just trying to make sense of the world in which they lived at the time? They were already familiar with the widespread ideologies of Greek philosophers and that they would write those subconscious assumptions about women into their religious mythology at the time. If we take into account Dr. Bard's idea that religion is meant to be a discussion and that we take our best understanding, use it as a riverbed, but then we continue discussion based on new findings and on our own personal experience, and we continue to have the discussion, it no longer makes sense to me that God would agree with ancient Greek philosophers. They came up with some great ideas, but they came up with a lot of really false ideas to continue to propagate those, to continue to hold those up as standards of truth 2,500 years later. Feels like a lack of progress. And I guess that's where I want to end today. What do you think? Do you feel like those hierarchies serve a purpose? Do you feel like they have served a purpose maybe historically and now it's time for a change? Maybe we've evolved as a species and it's time for a change. Or have they always been wrong? They didn't serve us. They've never served us. And like it is time for the narrative to change. I would love to hear what you have to say. Please go over to the Facebook group or, you know, 
Give me a personal message. Tell me what you think. What came up for you in this podcast? What insight did it give you about yourself? What did you learn that you didn't know before? And what would you like to know more about? I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Educate me. Tell me your experience. Expand my understanding. I'm still learning about this and I'm still, you know, having curiosity discussions with myself and my husband and my friends and my sister and just anyone who's willing to have a discussion with me about this. I would love to have a discussion with you. So send me your messages, send me your thoughts, and you're welcome to do this whether you are a woman, whether you are a man, whether you are gender fluid or gender non-binary. I want your perspective. Expand me. Expand my understanding. And I look forward to these discussions and I will talk to you next Sunday.